I'd like to talk to you about this morning is why we need a Savior. One of the things that is endemic in the Messianic community is there's a certain temperament that this movement attracts. And that temperament is one that enjoys digging into the nooks and crannies of Scripture and finding out stuff that nobody else knows and, and you know, being the smartest person in the room and you know, all that kind of stuff. It, it sort of goes with the territory. The reason most of you are sitting here today is because you have come to the conclusion that a bunch of stuff that you learned in the Sunday church is not quite correct, which I agree with, by the way. The problem with that is, as you get deeper and deeper into this stuff, and you start reading rabbinic sources, and you start reading the internet, and so forth, lots of people just sort of slide right on past and head off into either rabbinic Judaism or not much of anything at all. I've been observing that phenomenon as long as this church has been in existence. So, for example, some of you know Jeff Good guy, really liked him. He was one of the founding members of this church, and he's since moved to Florida. But one of the things that happened with Jeff is he sort of slid right on by. He said to me one day, I don't see any purpose in Yeshua. Believer in God, good man, not really terribly worried about him, but I think he's wrong on that. It happens over and over and over again. And as I say, the people in this church that your friends with on Facebook and stuff, you don't lose contact with, and nor should you. I'm not suggesting you should lose contact with them. But as they go off into something else, they keep talking to you on Facebook or Instagram or you know, whatever social media you happen to be on. So one of the things I'd like to talk to you about today is why do we need a Savior? What's the purpose here? The first problem is when people come into Torah, after having spent their lives in the Sunday church. And God bless the Sunday church. Everybody here got here from the Sunday church. So I'm not throwing rocks at them, okay? I'm, I'm using that as a technical term. Sunday church is the church that meets on Sunday. And one of the typical things about that church that most of you grew up in is there's, if nothing, kind of suspicious about the Torah. You know, you don't want to spend too much time in that old law. You want to spend most of your time in the New Testament, and you want to spend most of your time studying grace. And grace is a wonderful message. I believe in it. It's, it's super. So when you get into the Torah, and Torah sort of grabs hold of you, as it has a way of doing, you sort of think, well, gee, there's more to the story than what I learned, and given that there's more to the story, how much of that stuff do I throw away, and how much of it do I keep, and so forth. And one of the places that people fetch up it is sort of, if it's not in the Torah, I don't believe it. In fact, there's a very vocal guy on Facebook that is of that persuasion. Well, the problem there is there are things that are true that are not in the Torah. The Torah does not talk about the afterlife. It just isn't in there. Now, reading the Torah from the perspective of the New Testament, and you go back and read the Torah, you can see things that, oh yeah, okay, I can see what they're talking about, there's the afterlife. But not like the New Testament, you know, where God promises eternal life. It doesn't exist in the Torah. Resurrection. It's not in the Torah. Again, except by hints. And, you know, as, as you go back and you read it with New Testament eyes, you oh yeah, okay, I can see there that we're talking about resurrection. But it isn't explicitly stated like it is in the New Testament. There's no mention of a Messiah in the Torah. 
again, going back and reading the Torah with New Testament eyes, you can see, oh, yeah, he's in there all over the place. But it isn't explicitly stated. And there's no mention of salvation in the Torah. And again, going back and reading it with New Testament eyes, you can see salvation and grace all over the Torah. But it isn't explicitly stated. So somebody who is sort of turning his back on the Sunday church and going into Torah discovers that a whole bunch of the stuff that he has grown up to believe is not explicitly mentioned in the Torah. And that causes confusion. Now, don't get me wrong. Believing Jews believe in an afterlife. They believe in the resurrection. They believe in a Messiah. And they believe in salvation. But that's all a function of later parts of Scripture. If you just stay with the Torah, most of that stuff is not in there explicitly. Now, we need to start this discussion from a perspective that life has a purpose. Now, there are a lot of people in this world that believe that life has no purpose. You're not part of that group. Or at least, if you're sitting here, you aren't part of that group because the only reason you're sitting here is because you think life has a purpose. And, and the, one of the things I think is just really funny and ironic is the idea that thinking about the purpose of life and then deciding there is no purpose comes from a perspective of somebody who cares about purpose. And the idea that the universe created somebody who cares about purpose and has no purpose, I mean, I just think that's ironic. Very confused people. Anyway, a savior. There's a wide spectrum of beliefs about a savior. All of those beliefs have their basis in scripture. Nobody who believes in a savior, I am going to suggest, is stupid. So at the one end of the spectrum, you've got Calvinists. And Calvinists are of the opinion that people are helpless and you need a savior. The only way you're going to come to anything useful is through the agency of a savior because you're completely helpless. At the other end of the spectrum are Jews who believe that the Savior is a national hero who is going to restore the kingdom, but it isn't really talking about salvation in what I call the Baptist sense. And by the way, when I talk about salvation in the Baptist sense, I am not talking down about that. I am being technical. There's a certain belief that I characterize by the Baptist sense of what salvation means. I'm not being pejorative when I say that. So you have this spectrum of what that Savior looks like. Let's go to the Calvinists first. So let's pick a couple of pieces of scripture. Genesis 6-5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Good Calvinist passage. We are nothing but dirty, rotten sinners. Jeremiah 17-9-10. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Another good Calvinist passage. And by the way, these are good passages of Scripture. I'm not knocking these passages of Scripture. I'm simply saying, if you are coming at it as a Calvinist, what you're taking these is, I am a dirty, rotten worm, and nothing I do is worthy of anything, and... It's only through the grace of God that I continue to draw breath. And by the way, there is some virtue in that perspective. I'm just laying out the spectrum for you. Psalm 51, verse 2. God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are 
any who understand, who seek after God. They have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. And you can hear a fire and brimstone preacher just going at that one all day. And again, those are all good passages of Scripture, and I'm not at all throwing rocks at Scripture. What I'm suggesting is that the Calvinist way of understanding those Scriptures comes from a Greek mindset. And the problem with a Greek mindset and a Hebrew Bible is it always breaks down. Because I can go to other passages of Scripture that say just as emphatically, God loves you. He's full of grace. He expects you to be righteous. He values your righteousness. I can find passages just like that. So if you're coming at it from a strictly Greek perspective, what you wind up with is logical disconnects. So you've got to decide which ones that you're going to base your uh, theology on. And Calvinists have picked that set of scriptures, and they're bright people. And again, I'm not knocking them. They're very smart people. They care very much, but they're looking at the scripture from a certain perspective. Now, there's a different perspective. You all know that they're in the process of having elections in Israel. And if you listen to Zippy Livni, who's a liberal, if Netanyahu wins, the black hats are going to take over. There's going to be mass circumcision in the streets. The Arabs are all going to be subjugated. Nobody's ever going to talk to us again. It's just going to be this massive religious totalitarianism. You listen to Netanyahu. If the liberals take over, you're going to have to ride a normal personnel carrier to get to your synagogue because the Arabs are going to be all over the place and they're going to be killed. And by the way, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but not much. I am not exaggerating very much. The point is we're talking in terms of hyperbole, rhetoric, to make a point, to persuade. And if you're going to write a Bible to people who are hyperbolic, you need to engage in a little bit of theatrics. So when Jeremiah says the human heart is desperately wicked, and it, you know, on and on and on, he's making a hyperbolic point. Because in other passages of Scripture, God very much values our righteous behavior. He tells us to behave righteously. So what I'm suggesting to you is how you approach Scripture determines in large measure, what your view of the Messiah is. Which, by the way, is why I don't happen to fall on the Calvinist end of the spectrum. I don't believe that I'm helpless. I believe God has given me free will, and he's given me the ability to choose. And he has given me all the tools that I need to choose him. Now, I also believe that once I've made that choice, he will arrange things so that sticking with that choice becomes easy or easier. So, we've looked at our problem, and our problem is we live in a world full of confusion, full of confusing voices. We have a set of scripture that says different things depending on what mindset you bring to it. This is a difficult problem, and please understand that I am not throwing rocks at Calvinists, nor am I throwing rocks at Jews, nor am I throwing rocks at people who have sort of slid by. I'm simply saying, this is not an easy problem. That's from our perspective. God also has a problem. So let's look at this problem from God's perspective. It's God's problem. Well, the first problem that God has is mortality has been introduced into his world. He didn't create us to die. That wasn't part of the original design. 
but mortality has been introduced into this world that he created. So that's his first problem. And when I say problem, I'm not suggesting that this isn't something God can solve. I'm talking in engineering terms here. His first problem is that mortality has been introduced into the world. His second problem is the way that he designed us, our self-interest prevents us from repairing that damage. Let's think about that a minute. One of the ways you can look at the Bible is as a case study. And Israel is our case study. And what does Israel show us over and over and over again? That Israel is placed in a good land with the presence of God in their midst, and they eventually descend into apostasy, violence, and have to be thrown out of the pool because they can no longer govern themselves. And oh, by the way, that's what happened in the garden. We got placed in a perfect place. We descended into violence and death and finally had to be thrown out of the pool because we couldn't take care of ourselves. So Israel and humanity over and over and over again, God takes us and repairs the damage, puts us in a good place, is even in our midst. You know, God walks in the midst of the garden. God has his presence in the midst of the camp. God has his presence in the temple in Israel. Even the very presence of God in the midst of us is not sufficient to keep us from running off the rails as a society. Now, within that, there are always individuals who are, in fact, righteous. For example, the nation gets pitched out by a bunch of big, hairy Babylonians. Daniel is a righteous man. Joseph is a righteous man. There are righteous people, but the society eventually craters over and over and over again. And that's one of the ways you can read the Bible, is as a record that you are not able to prepare this thing on your own. It's been tried. The United States started off as a godly nation. Where are we now? Just like everybody else. So the second part of his problem is we can't fix it. We've tried over and over again, and the record shows we can't fix it. The third part of his problem is there's an adversary who sows confusion and death. So it isn't even just us that are messing it up. We're half help. So there's an adversary out there that's sowing confusion and death. Furthermore, this adversary uses God's own laws against him. So God has set up this perfect law that he's told us about in the Torah. The adversary, once he gets humans to trip up, then uses that law to keep us tripped up. And then the final problem that he's got is he loves us. That's the thing that makes it difficult. You know, every movie that you see, you know, where the bad guy takes the kid as a hostage and the problem is the guy with the gun on the other side of the hostage loves the hostage. That's a problem. Because if he didn't, I mean, he could just sort of sand things down and start over. So, the question becomes, how does God solve this problem? And I'm going to talk about that in two ways. One is technically and the other one is relationally. So technically, a Savior solves all of these problems, first, by his resurrection. Because by his resurrection, the idea of resurrection and immortality is established. So you've reintroduced by his resurrection the idea of immortality. And he is the first fruits. 
of that. And again, I've said this many times, being raised from the dead is not a big deal. It happens lots of times in the Bible. Being raised from the dead and not dying again is the big deal. For example, Lazarus was raised from the dead. As far as I know, Lazarus then went on and died again. Same thing with the Shunammite's son, raised from the dead. As far as I know, he went along and died again. Didn't happen with Yeshua. Also raised from the dead, but did not die again. So the idea then is the Messiah, or the Savior, establishes the idea of human immortality again. What's the thing that keeps us from fixing this thing? Self-interest. And by the way, self-interest is something that God created. But every one of us goes through life, and we have to make a choice between our own self-interest and what's right or somebody else's. And we always all have to do this. And typically, sometimes we're pretty good, but most of us not always. I know my self-interest gets in the way of doing what's right lots and lots of times. We call that sin. But it all is based on self-interest. Well, what did the Savior do? He put aside his own self-interest in order to follow the will of the Father. Remember, not my will, but thy will be done. So what the Messiah does is shows an ability to put the interest of the Father against his own self-interest. The thing a Savior does. He knows the adversary and he's not intimidated. One of our problems is we also know the adversary. And we are intimidated, mostly. I mean, there's some of us that aren't, but, you know, by and large, people get intimidated by the adversary. Messiah doesn't. Savior doesn't. Remember, I said that the adversary uses God's own law against him. The Savior did everything according to God's law. There was no hook that the adversary could use with respect to the Savior. One of the things about God's law, and I'm going to go back to the Torah for you. This struck me like a ton of bricks last night when I was studying this. And I'm going to go to Genesis 9. You all remember Genesis 9. That's when they get out of the boat and they come up on dry land. And God gives them a new set of marching orders. So let's pick it up at 9.2. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens. Upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea, into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat the flesh with its life. That is its blood. And for your life blood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. Now, we have always taught that, and I certainly believe it, that that's a requirement to establish justice. True statement, it is. But there's also something in there. Let me read this again. From every beast I will require, and from man, From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Now, there's no weasel words in there that say, except in the case of justifiable homicide, or in the case of war, or anything else. It just flat says, if anybody sheds the blood of a man, I will require that blood. And in fact, that is the whole purpose of the half shekel 
that every warrior in Israel is required to give? It's blood money. In case he is required to shed blood, that half shekel is redemption money for him. Now, what I will suggest is this little bit in the Torah that says, for the shedding of blood, I will require the shedding of blood. Why do you suppose the Messiah blood had to be shed? Because clear back here in Genesis 9, God says, I will absolutely require recompense for the shedding of man's blood. Now, the final thing, remember I said that there's two sides to this pollution. One is technical, which I've just gone through. The other one is relational. What do I mean by that? One of the things that I will suggest to you is sacrifice shows commitment. So, what you have is God sends his son, the Savior, and in that process, the Son, the Savior, is willing to sacrifice himself for those who God loves. I will suggest that shows commitment. And in that, what God is doing is establishing relationships with us. He is telling us by that that I love you and I am committed to this. I am committed to this to the extent that I am willing to have my son die for you. So that's a relational kind of a thing. So what I will suggest to you is that the requirement for a savior is a savior is needed to solve God's problem, which is we're a mess and he loves us. We can't fix it and he loves us. But there's another part to this. We're in a battle and the battleground is us. Most of the battle happens right between your ears. But at some point, that war is going to be over. At some point, he is going to have won. The battle will be finished. And we need to be demobilized and restored. You all heard of post-traumatic stress? It's kind of big in the news right now. So the whole idea is, after this battle, those of us who survive and those of us who don't survive, who die before the final redemption, we need to be demobilized. And we need to be put under a king. Why do you think he's called the Prince of Peace, Sar Shalom? It's because he, the Savior, is going to be the one who demobilizes us from this battle. And we then live with him in his kingdom in peace without the conflict and the confusion that we have before. That's the Jewish view of the Messiah. What I'm hoping you've seen is all the way from the Calvinist view to the Jewish view, they're all encompassed in a Savior. And a Savior is absolutely necessary. It's not an option. Because without the Savior, God's problem doesn't get solved. We don't get redeemed. We don't live under the Messianic King. And we don't have peace. Which is to say, without the Savior, God will have lost the war, which is not an option.